All right, let's take our Bibles. We're going to the Word of God now, and it is God speaking to us. Let's pray that it might be explained accurately and carefully in a way that you understand the truth, so you might be able to apply the truth. And that's our purpose as preachers and teachers of the Word of God. We're going through Second Corinthians. We're in chapter 10 today. Paul overall is defending his ministry to show that he is in fact a bona fide apostle, that he's not in the ministry for money, and that he has his qualifications from God, not from man. He's been accused of many things by false teachers who come into the assembly after he left. Unfortunately, he has persuaded members of the congregation to follow their line of thinking as well. And so Paul is dealing with them as well as the false teachers. He interrupted his defense of his own ministry uh, in chapters 8 and 9 to present what I consider to be the Magna Carta of Christian giving when he deals with grace giving under the new covenant and to show the difference uh, when it is compared to giving under the old covenant. And it's something that we forget at times because, remember, the new covenant was instituted by the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, every time we remember the Lord, we're supposed to remember that his blood brought into effect the new covenant. And a part of that new covenant, new relationship with God, is how we give our money. And Paul deals with it very specifically in chapters 8 and 9. We looked at those chapters the past several weeks. But now he returns to defending himself against the false charges of the false teachers in Corinth in chapter 10. And in doing so, he lays down some principles for us as well as to how we can respond to false accusations in a Christ-like way. Now that's not as easy as it seems. See as we go through. Notice what the text says. Now I have the text on the screen. And then I will give you sort of a a paraphrase, an ARL paraphrase of what I think it's teaching so we can understand what he's saying. He says in verse 1, this is a New Living Translation. Now I, Paul, appeal to you with the gentleness and kindness of Christ. Though I realize you think I am timid in person and bold only when I write from far away. It's amazing what Paul is saying and implying here and how we miss a lot of things because we just go through it casually. He says, well, I am begging you now so that when I come, I won't have to be bold with those who think we act from human motives. See, that was one of the accusations these people had against Paul, that he was acting purely on human motivation. He was there for the money. He wanted prestige. He wanted to milk the people in Corinth. That was the charge. So what Paul is actually saying is, I am appealing to you in a Christ-like manner of humility and graciousness. Even though you mistakenly think that I'm a wimp when I'm with you, but tough when I write letters from afar, he says, I want you to see I'm just doing the opposite now. In this letter, he says, I am appealing to you with gentleness and kindness of Christ. I'm not rowing you right now. I'm not shouting at you. I'm not hollering at you. I am appealing to you in a Christ-like way. 
And that's one of the first principles we have in dealing with false accusations. At the offset, we must determine that we are going to respond in a Christ-like manner. That's what Paul is saying here. He says, I'm not doing that now. In other words, being forceful when I'm away and only being nice when I'm, when I'm with you. No, no. This letter shows I'm being nice even when I'm away from you. I'm humbly and graciously saying what I have to say in this letter so I won't have to be harsh with those who are accusing me of being in the ministry for selfish reasons. He says, I am doing just the opposite now of what you accuse me of doing. I am appealing to you in a loving and in a Christ-like way in this letter. Now, he says, that doesn't mean that I won't be direct when I come to you, because I'm still going to do that, but I just want to show you that my methodology is not always according to your thinking. Paul is going to demonstrate in his letter that his methodology of doing ministry and dealing with people was not according to the way men normally do it, but a way according to the way God gives us in his work, word and through the enablement of the Holy Spirit. He's saying then, when I confront them face to face, I'm going to be bold to them. I'm not going to be afraid of them. You see, Paul fitted his response to the occasion. There are times when we should be meek and humble when we are accused falsely. But the other times when we have to be direct and forceful. We have to pray for wisdom as to when is when. When we should do one or the other. This is what Paul is modeling for us here. Verse 3, he explains that. We are human, but we don't wage war as humans do. He's saying, actually, I'm just like you. Only thing is, I don't act the way you act. I don't behave the way the false teachers behave. Paul is so personalized this. Paul says, listen, I'm just like you are. I'm just like the false teachers, human. But the difference is, I don't operate or do my ministry using human means or strategy, as the false teachers are doing. Later on, we saw, or earlier we saw, that they use false accusations, they use false teachings, they use deceit, they use manipulation, and they use man's standards and man's qualifications. Paul says, no, sir, I don't do my ministry like that. I might be human as they are, but I do not carry my ministry on a human level. That's his point. How does he do it then? But, but that's another principle. We're coming back to it later on. The principle is that when we face uh, false accusations, we must show that we do so based on the word of God and enabled by the spirit of God. We'll come back to that. Verse 4 says, We use God's mighty weapons, not worldly weapons. The implication is, as the false teachers were doing, we use God's mighty weapons. Now, earlier we saw that these mighty weapons were, first of all, the word of God. He dealt with the gospel and what it is was at the beginning. And he dealt with the fact that he didn't preach according to human wisdom, but the wisdom that was given by God. Those were the godly and the mighty weapons, enabled by the Holy Spirit. He explained all of that before. We use God's mighty weapons, the word of God, enabled by the spirit of God, not worldly wisdom, not manipulation, not any kind of threatening as these men were doing, not doing something just to get money from the congregation. 
He says we do this to knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. I believe this is one of the most misused passages today because it is used especially by people who deal with spiritual warfare. They say these strongholds have to do with devils and demons and we must be able to attack these strongholds and destroy the demons. That's not what this passage is teaching at all. These strongholds are not demons or people, although we'll see in a moment they are motivated by demons or false spirits if you want. But these has to do with ideas, concepts, false teachings. In other words, Paul is saying the way you all, the reason why you are behaving the way you are behaving is because of the false teachings, the false pre-concepts and philosophies that you have allowed to fill your minds and you are basing your ministry and your and the way you live on these false teachings. He says now, we're going to use the word of God and depend upon the spirit of God to get rid of these things. To knock down the strongholds of human reasoning and to destroy false arguments. In a very real sense, Paul is dealing with the battle for the mind. And people, that is something we have to be reminded of today. See, unfortunately, not too many of God's people are using their minds when they listen to teachers today, when they listen to the word. They listen to their heart. They listen to the emotions. They listen to their feeling. If it makes them feel good, then it must be true. Like, for instance, most people come to church like this today. What you come for? I won't be blessed. That's all. You won't be blessed. What does that mean? I don't want to hear anything about that will convict me of my sin. That I am lying at work. That I am stealing. That I am being deceitful. I'm unfaithful to my wife. I'm unfaithful to my husband. I'm not obedient to my parents. I'm stealing from my job. I don't want to hear nothing about that. All I want to hear is that, hey, God has a good plan for my life. He's going to bless me with all the money that I want. He's going to bless me with a good home, bless me with a good boat, bless me with all these good things. That's all I want. I want to be blessed. But you know, that's what you might want, but God might want to convict you of your sin. For instance, when I listened to that first song that, we sang today. Anton, we've got to talk about that one because I believe we have a little thing that we've got to adjust here. Uh, who's that up there? That Janet? Janet, can you put the first verse of that one, uh, Come As You Are, or Come As With It? You see, we have this idea we could come into God's presence as we are. We don't have to do anything in order for God to accept our worship. That is not true. That is absolutely not true. In fact, in the Old Testament, you remember, we had uh, these folk who came, big bands, big choir, nice offerings, all of that. God says, I don't want any of it. He says, in fact, will somebody please close the door? Keep these people out. Why? He says, because you come to me with all of these things, but your heart is far from me. There's a preparation we have to make. And for instance, I think it's in Psalm 15, when he says, Who will dwell in the tent in the presence of the Almighty? And then he goes on to provide qualifications for those who have the privilege of coming into the presence of God to worship him. So when you see this song, it says, Come as you are to worship. I don't believe that is true at all. You don't come as you are to worship. You can come as you are for salvation to get cleansed, 
but not to worship. We have to see there's a difference there. And why is this important? I believe that we perpetuate error. And we accept it as being, isn't good to know that no matter what I do, I could be sinning, I could be involved in any sign of sin, come here, give my money, sing, and God is going to receive it? Because I could come as I am? I'm sorry, the Bible does not teach that. You could come as you are to be cleansed, but God is not, God does not want you to stay as you are. He wants to cleanse you, so then you could come and worship. You understand what I'm saying? And we have to see this. This is the kind of thing that Paul was dealing with here. False teachings, false philosophies, false ideas. And too many of us build our lives on things that are not true. It sounds good. It sounds pious. It sounds holy. But it's erroneous. It's false teaching. That's why it's important for us to go to the word of God. Notice he says, uh, Paul sees the major problem then at Corinth as being wrongly held beliefs, false teachings. He sees this as the root cause for their problem. So these strongholds, these strongholds that he mentions have nothing to do with demons or spiritual warfare. It has to do with wrong beliefs taught by those who are motivated by evil spirits. We'll see that in a moment. But he's talking about wrong doctrine and the idea that if you hold wrong doctrine, your life cannot be right. The truth is this. Right doctrine leads to right living. Wrong doctrine leads to wrong living. This is what Paul is doing here. So he says, I use God's powerful weapons. And as I said before, as explained in in 1 Corinthians as well as 2 Corinthians, the weapons he's talking about primarily is the word of God as supported and enabled by the spirit of God. So he's talking about confronting error with the truth of God. That's what he's talking about. I use God's powerful weapons, he says, to destroy the arsenals of every long-held false and erroneous human reasoning, arguments, and false philosophies that keep people from knowing the true God. You see, it is these false teachings, false ideas that keep people from really knowing God the way he should be known. They believe they know him, but they're wrong. They don't because it's based on erroneous teaching, just like Anton was using between the worship in the the two different mountains. Those people who were worshiping on this mountain over here and not the temple, they were really convinced that this was the right way, the proper way, and they were worshiping, but it was wrong. We have the same kind of ideas. Sometimes, if we don't filter through the word of God, our lifestyle could be erroneous as well. Verse 5, we destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. Now these proud obstacles again has to do with false teachings. What has been implanted in your mind and my mind through the teachings of people who don't know the word of God. We destroy every proud obstacle that keeps people from knowing God. We capture their rebellious thoughts. Notice, their rebellious thoughts. In other words... Their ideas, their thoughts, their concepts that go contrary to the word of God. But when the word of God is proclaimed under the enablement of the spirit of God, those thoughts are held captive by truth to the word of God. In other words, 
the word of God corrects these false, rebellious taught, thoughts, and then you are able to obey Jesus Christ. And he says, after you have become fully obedient, we will punish everyone who remains disobedient. So what is he saying? My paraphrase of that is this. I use God's powerful weapons of the word enabled by the Holy Spirit to destroy the arsenals, the strongholds of every long-held false and erroneous human reasoning, arguments and false philosophies that keep people from knowing the true God. Paul is saying, I use God's weapon to overcome the human ideas by accurately teaching you how to be obedient to Jesus Christ. That's why you can be sure, he's saying, that I will severely discipline these false teachers among you. But I won't do so until I am sure that you are being obedient to my teaching yourselves. He doesn't want to condemn the righteous with the unrighteous. He wants to say, hey now, I want to be sure that you are following my teachings and not these teachers. Because when I come, I'm going to deal with them severely. And I don't want to have to do that with you. That's what he's saying here. Verse 7, Paul says, look at the obvious facts. Just look at it. Reason it out yourself if you want. Those who say they belong to Christ must recognize that we belong to Christ as much as they do. He's simply saying here, if you are a genuine believer based on faith in the Christ that I preach, in the gospel that I present, this is all, you've got to see all of this in the whole context here. In other words, if you have really placed your faith in the Christ of the gospel that I preach, my message, you will immediately accept what I'm saying. You will see that what I am saying is correct. He is applying the principle that Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, right? My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. This is the principle Paul is applying here. He says, if you are a genuine believer of Christ based on my gospel, the gospel I preach to you, you're going to recognize the truth immediately. You see, you're going to recognize it immediately. So he's saying as simple as this. Genuine believers in Christ will immediately recognize and acknowledge that I am as much a believer as you are. My spirit or our spirit will give us that inner conviction of, of oneness in Christ. Truth does that. Truth binds us together. Truth is that which gives us a sense of oneness and unity in Christ. Verse 8. I may seem to be boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord. This was another thing that they were talking about. Paul, they were accusing him of being an illegitimate apostle. He didn't have the authority as he said he did. And remember, he started out both of his epistles to the Corinthians making that point. If you go to 1 Corinthians 1.1, it says, This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the claim to authority. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians 1.1. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to an apostle of Jesus Christ. He was claiming apostolic authority here. Now they were using that against him. Paul says, it might seem to you that I'm boasting too much about the authority given to us by the Lord. But our authority builds you up. It doesn't tear you down. This is an implication that the false teachers were doing the opposite. They, claim, they came to Corinth 
claiming to be genuine apostles, and they had all these letters of commendations from other churches to say that that was true. In other words, remember earlier we saw Paul said they were basing their claim to authority on human qualifications, on human recommendation, but his recommendation, his qualification came from God. He says, I use my authority to build you up, to lead you to maturity. But they are using a claimed authority that they do not have to destroy you. And he says, I'm going to deal with that when I come. So in effect, he's saying, these false teachers may accuse me of stressing my God-given authority as an apostle too much. But I'm only doing this to mature you as believers, not to destroy your faith. So let me make it clear to you and to them. I am not timid or afraid to exercise my authority for the purpose of building you up in the faith. That's what he's saying here. Remember, Paul had a special commission from Jesus Christ to be the what? The apostle to the, to the Gentiles. And that's what he's claiming here. The false teachers, on the other hand, were exercising an authority among the Corinthians that they had never received from the Lord. Not only that, but they were exercising this authority in a manner to tear down the saints rather than to build them up. So Paul is saying there are times when we can misuse the idea of authority as well. We're going to see that in a moment as well. Verse 9. I'm not trying to frighten you by my letters. For some say Paul's letters are demanding and forceful. But in person he is weak and his speeches are worthless. There is another accusation they had. Paul was not a powerful preacher. He was not uh, what we would call a uh, charismatic preacher. I don't mean full of the spirit type thing, but I mean energetic and that type of a thing. You know, one who causes you to jump up and clap and shout and holler. And anything I say after that, you're going to accept. You're not going to think about it anymore because I am so overbearing. I am so, uh, I have so much charisma, so much personality. Uh, you will listen to me just so you, you'll agree with me just because you like the way I deliver it. Paul says, no, no, I don't work like that. I just present the truth and leave God to do the rest. That's what Paul is saying here. The false teachers were exercising an authority among the Christians which they had never received from the Lord, as I said. Um, notice what he says now in verse 9. And sorry, verse 10. Well, I just mentioned that about his being not a powerful preacher as such. Paul's emphasis was not the manner in which he preached. Paul's manner was on the message that he preached. He wanted to be accurate more than charismatic. That's Paul's point here. Now, these are the charges that they were made against Paul by his opponents. They charged him with writing threatening letters. But they said his physical presence is weak. And his speech was contemptible. I hear that all the time. That's how they appeared to those. That's how he appeared to those who were using fleshly and human means to use their ministry for their own selfish and personal ends. In other words, they were using their own standards to judge Paul. Paul says that's not legitimate. Paul had already stated that his approach to doing ministry, including fighting his opponents, was to use the spiritual weapons God himself has provided, his word and his spirit, 
coupled with an attitude of humility and dependence upon God. He did not use deception, human wisdom, intimidation, or manipulation the way these men were doing. He preached and lived the word of God and left the rest to God. He didn't have to defend the truth. All he had to do was to lay it out. That's why I tell our students at Talios, you never try to win a theological argument. You just lay out the truth. Let the truth speak for itself. The truth will win the, op the opponent. If you just try to use your own wisdom to win an argument, you may win the argument, but you might lose the person you're arguing with. And our reason for putting out the truth is never to win an argument, but rather it's simply to lay out the truth so God could do his work in the lives. Verse 11, those people should realize that our actions when we arrive in person will be as forceful as what we say in our letters from far away. He says, I want you to understand this. I say what I mean, and I mean what I say. That's what he's saying here. Saying that I use different approaches to dealing with false accusations. Sometimes I will be forceful. Other times I won't. It's if the occasion demands it or not. So this is an apostolic authoritative way, uh, warning rather, to the false teachers and the followers at Corinth. Whatever I say in my, in my person, when I'm with you, person to face, person face to face, or when I'm away and I write a letter and send it to you, I will do what I say. You can take that to the bank. That's what Paul is saying here. Verse 12. Oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare to say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are. You remember we saw that they were exalting themselves. They came with all of these human commendations to the Corinthian people to try to validate that they were genuine apostles. He says, now, I'm not going to tell you that I am as great as they are based on human recommendation. I'm not going to take that route. You see, what's happening with them is they are comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. Paul says how ignorant that is, how foolish. I don't compare myself with anyone else. These men set up their own authority. These men set up their own qualifications, but not me. I only go according to the qualifications that God has laid out. So Paul is saying, in effect, in verse 12, chill out. I'm not making any grandiose claims like these fellows who toot their own horns, boasting how great and important they are. You know, these people like to say, you know, I went to this seminar, I got this degree, I got that degree, I got DDT, TTD, all these other things. And because of that, I'm a great preacher and so on. Paul didn't say that. Paul didn't say that. They are using themselves as standards and models for their behavior. My goodness, Paul says, how stupid can you be? You don't do that. We do not use ourselves as measurement for success. We use the word of God. That's the standard Paul was using. You know, someone else has said, if a person's only standard is himself, then he is always right. There's no room for improvement either. 
This is the reason why the humanist manifesto says something like this. Man is the measure of all things. It's so ridiculous and just plain ignorant to make such a statement. Our only perfect, unchanging, and absolute standard is God himself as revealed in the word of God. And that's what Paul is saying. Verse 13. We will not boast about things done outside our area of authority. We will boast only about what has happened within the boundaries of the work God has given us, which includes our working with you. Verse 14. We are not reaching beyond these boundaries when we claim authority over you, as if we had never visited you. For we were the first to travel all the way to Corinth with the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul is saying. We don't do such nonsense as comparing myself with humans. I do not boast or glory in what I have no direct responsibility for. These men were doing that in Corinth. They were trying to take the credit for the church in Corinth. Paul says he does not do anything like that. I only glory and take credit for the ministry God has assigned to me, which includes my work at Corinth with, with you. It is not wrong for me, Paul is saying, to speak with authority as far as you are concerned as a local church, as if we had never been to Corinth, when in fact we were the first ones to come, with you, come to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is simply saying this, listen, I have a special responsibility towards you. Why? Because I was the one who brought the gospel to you. Therefore, I have a special concern for you. And you can elaborate on that. I have a special love for you. I'm just not forgetting that because I'm not here with you anymore. I have a special concern for you. That's why, uh, beloved, as we celebrate our 50th anniversary this year, we must not forget to thank God for Brother Earl Reich and Mrs. Reich. Our praise and our thanksgiving should be focused on them because God sent them here to start this ministry. But yet, Paul is saying his focus, he's going to deal with this later, is not on man, it's on God. It's what God has done. So, the joy and the happiness not come through what Pastor Rish has done, although we thank God for that, but rather it should be focused on God who worked through Pastor Rish, who worked through Sister Rish. That's why I am praying that this celebration will be one that focuses on praise and worship to God for what he has done through all of the different peoples through all of the years here. But don't let us only give man the glory. We've got to give it to God. That's what Paul is saying. Verse 15. Nor do we boast and claim credit for the work someone else has done. Instead, we hope that your faith will grow so that the boundaries of our work among you will be extended. He's simply saying this, listen, I'm hoping that you will continue to mature in the faith to the point where you are reaching out to others outside of Corinth, which will then be an extension of my ministry through you. Paul is simply saying here, I want to see you grow so you reach out to, reach, to, to, uh, to include others with the gospel that I brought to you. Then I can boast in the fact that the ministry is really effective. It's not just for you. It's for those outside of your borders as well. That's Paul's point here. And that's something we can thank God for for Calvary Bible Church. As far as foreign missionaries is concerned, this church has been reaching out year after year beyond themselves. However, we do have a challenge with reaching out here in our own homeland. 
And that's one of the things that we have to work on, I believe. That's a challenge for the next 50 years. How are we going to impact? How are we going to affect this community in which we live? You see? Verse 16. Then we will be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond you. In other words, they will free me up to go someplace else. We will be able to go and preach the good news in other places far beyond you where no one else is working. Then there will be no question of our boasting about work done in somebody else's territory. As the scripture says, if you want to boast, boast only about the Lord. See that? If we want to take credit for anything that we've done in our ministry, you don't say, I have done it. You've got to say, God has done it. Paul's desire is to reach out far beyond our local home to others. That will be a sign that the ministry has really been effective. The word of God is really taking root. So he's saying, again, as my paraphrase, this outreach on your part will enable me to take the gospel to others who have not yet heard the good news about Christ. This will remove all doubt or questions regarding my building upon somebody else's ministry and taking the credit for myself. That's why I could never dare to take credit for anything that God does at Calvary Bible Church. Nothing. Because it is God who's done it. He started it through Pastor Weesh, and that continues to spread out. And we have to give God, not man, the glory. He says, this will remove all doubt or questions regarding my building upon someone else's ministry and taking the credit for myself, as these false apostles accusing me of doing. I want to be true to the word of God, Paul is saying, that says we should only boast or take credit for God himself, what God himself has done through us and our ministry. We must never forget that. Verse 18, when people commend themselves, it doesn't count for much. The important thing is for the Lord to commend them. Uh, for a long time, I had a problem of receiving any kind of thanks for anything I've done, really. Especially if somebody somebody to come up to me and say, boy, that was a good message. Most of the time people say that, you know, they didn't listen to the message. If they'd listened carefully, they'd probably say, man, that's a message that brought conviction to my soul. I've got to stop this. I've got to change that. But I, used to, I came to the point where I never used to go to the front door to greet people because I didn't want to hear that because I'm afraid I might try to take the glory from God. And God says he will share his glory with no one. The same thing comes with sharing gifts. God has given us special gifts. He's given to us freely. That's why it's very difficult for me if I'm invited to speak to a church to say that I'll only come if you pay me so much money. I think that's robbing God by robbing his people. Why? Because any gift God has given to me, that's free. And therefore, I should freely give it. You understand? And so I believe that when we charge for gifts that God has given us, especially from God's people, we are robbing God by robbing his people. Because God has invested us so we can invest in others. Paul wants to be sure that it is God and not man who gets the glory. Verse, where am I? Verse 18. When people commend themselves, it doesn't count for much. The important thing is for the Lord to commend them. Because after all, Paul is saying, self-commendation does not amount for much. It's only what God commends us 
that really counts. And that is what I am striving for, Paul says, to hear God's commendation, well done, thou good and faithful servant. So that's how Paul responded to these false charges. But here are the basic points for us, I believe, in defending ourselves against false accusations in a Christ-like way. Number one, whenever you are confronted with a false accusation, with gossip and so on, how do you respond? One, determine to respond with humility and graciousness right at the offset. Determine to glorify God in your response. That's number one. Number two, if necessary, remain silent, waiting for a more appropriate time to respond. I believe that's what Paul done. Paul did here. I believe that Paul, rather than responding to these fellows saying that you are not a true apostle, you only work in Corinth for the money, I believe Paul was angry at that. But rather than bursting out in that, he said, I'm going to wait till I go away from you and I'm going to write a letter to tell you how I really feel about this. So, remain silent. Sometimes that's the best thing you can do in the front, in the face of false accusation. Don't say anything. Wait for a more appropriate time to respond. Sometime you will find that God sends someone in to fight your battle for you. And that's the best thing. When others come in to defend you because they know the truth. You understand? Number three, be ready to confront boldly when necessary, but always with a reminder that we do not have apostolic authority. We cannot be as bold as Paul was in many cases. Why? Because Paul had apostolic authority. We don't have that. But there are times when we must speak out forcefully. For instance, here's what he says in Titus chapter 1 verses 10 through 12. Would you read that passage for me? Notice, Paul said these folk here, they disturb, they cause many families to go astray. He said, those kind of people who teach false doctrine and do that must be silenced. And we're going to talk more about this tonight. But there are times when we have to be very direct. Many times, the only way we could show love when we are falsely excused is by being very open, upfront, direct rather than being meek or humble. Paul does that in this passage. That's why number four is so important. Ask God for wisdom before responding. Seek the counsel of other spiritually mature individuals as well. Now we're bringing in other teachings here. We need to be sure that when we respond, we are using the wisdom that comes from God. And many times God shows us our wisdom to other mature individuals. We need to talk. Here's what Anton said about me. Pastor Albi, is that true? Is that the way I am? Is that really the way I am? Pastor Albi might say, yeah, you just like In fact, you're worse than that. <laughs> then I'll attack him, you see. No. But what I'm saying is, you might be convinced that the way you treated, I treated Anton was correct. Pastor Albrecht has seen it from a whole different perspective. And when he tells me, then I see it as well. 
And rather than striking out against Anton, I'll go to him and ask for apology and his forgiveness. It's important for us to get this advice from spiritually mature individuals. And finally, use the word of God with dependence upon the Holy Spirit to apply it as he sees fit and when to do so. In other words, let's always go to the word of God. Read the passage. In fact, we had a little situation, and I'll close with this. Lately, you might have seen it in the paper, dealing with another pastor associate. He said, he said and did some things that we as some pastors thought were inappropriate. And so we confronted him, but we did it through the newspapers. He called me up. He says, Pastor Lee, I could understand from these other fellas doing something like that, but not you. I say, what? He say, yeah, I couldn't see you putting your signature to this. He says, how come you did not talk to me first before going public? And the Lord slapped me right away, just like that, because I knew I should have done that. So we had him come here, and I met with the guys, and we did the apology. Why? Because we did not follow that first advice to care for, uh, to follow the word of God in correcting a brother. And he was quite right. Although he was wrong in what he said, we were also wrong in the way we, we responded. You see? And we made that quite clear. However, now if I wanted to really argue the point, I could say, yeah, I could go to First Timothy 2 and tell him, hey, the Bible says, if an elder or pastor sins, rebuke him openly so others might fear. We could have used that, but I didn't want to do that. I didn't want to go, why? I might have then lost my brother altogether. But at least we have an understanding and we can work on. You understand what I'm saying? So it's important to follow the word of God. Be willing to admit when you're wrong. Ask forgiveness if necessary, but also be willing to stand for the truth. Now we're going to look at this tonight. How should a congregation respond to false teaching from the pulpit? Paul is going to say, this false teaching is going on, and you all accepted it. You all bore it well. Read the rest of the passage, you'll see that. In other words, you all just sat there and didn't say one thing. You didn't do anything. Paul deals with that as well. Because we as a congregation must have a responsibility when it comes to confronting false teaching as well. All right, let's end it tonight. We're going to continue. We encourage you to come out. And we're going to see the role of the devil in this whole situation and how good the devil looks.